Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 30 of the Noel Kassler podcast. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening. I'm back here with my main man, Jimmy Kennedy. We're going to get into it here in a minute, but let's say hi to Jimmy. Jimmy, how you doing today? You got your blue Indiana colors on? Yes, sir. Indiana Pacers uh, back in their ABA days with the ABA design. So um, we'll see how they do this season. Uh, the All-Star game is supposed to be in Indy this year, so that'll be exciting. That's right. Remind me to get you tickets, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, I'm got to get to the All-Star game. I'll hook you up, man. That's my, those are my homies. It's like my family that does that show, the halftime and all that stuff. So we'll find something fun for you to do. Make sure you're in there. There's three events The you know, the, the Sunday night game is almost anticlimactic. The rookie <laughs> game on Friday night. And obviously the slam dunk contest is really fun on Saturday night. By the time you get to the all-star game, you're pretty burnt from doing that. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. the difference is between the super bowl and the all-star game weekend. What, what are the differences? about 800 pounds of weed <laughs> yeah that's probably about if, right dude i don't think you have any idea what's about to come down on indiana it is a party <laughs> dude it is like mardi gras one of the funnest weekends you could have man you know i was sober doing them all but like it doesn't matter it's just a good time people come to celebrate you know and uh yeah. it's, a, it's a really good time so uh, it makes the Super Bowl was lame when we were in Indiana. Let's be honest. You know, <laughs> it was freezing rain. It's kind of a boring town. But, um, you know, the NBA will bring its own flavor. So you guys will have a good time. Oh, yeah, of course. All right. So let's get into it. Not to diss Indiana. You know, now <laughs> we're going to get letters. But, um, you know, hey, Jimmy, I was at my theater yesterday that I'm playing next to Wall Street Theater in Norwalk, Connecticut. This theater uh -huh. is killer, bro. It's been renovated. It's beautiful. Great lobby. Great facade. Incredible stage. Incredible house with a couple balconies and stuff. So I'm nice. playing there November 18th. It's a Thursday night. It's election week. It's going to be a really good time. <laughs> you know, I'm going to bring the fire. If it's anything like Annapolis, man, it's don't miss this thing. If you're a fan of the podcast and you, you sort of like my take on things, come on out to a live show because it's not you know, it's funny. It's not me ranting, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, but you know, there's a message in there too. But um, I humbly ask you to attend November 18th, Wall Street Theater. So that being said, you know, there's a lot of break, a lot to break down this week. You know, I guess we should work backwards. You know, it's like you had, you got another Trump rally today in Georgia, which is just yeah. insane. And people camped out overnight to attend today. They were showing up yesterday, you know, which shows the cult-like nature of this guy. Rural and semi-rural and sort of suburban white America that fell for this dude had no chance, okay? And I know a lot of these guys. If you sort of like got your learning from your grandpappy and your pappy and the whole thing was jingoistic, waving a flag, we're hardworking Americans, the immigrants are coming to take your job, you know? If that's the reason you think there's three broken down cars in your front yard, you don't have a chance at a 75 year old with Queens from Queens who was doing mob business for 30, 40 years, you know, because Trump can spot a mark from a mile away, you know, and these guys are making it easy for him and they're being manipulated so hard now. It's, it's just embarrassing. You know, I often wake up and I'm just embarrassed that I'm part of this country. Like, <laughs> to be honest, and there's a lot of good people here. It's just, it's fucking embarrassing. People are stupid, you know, and Trump is like the king of the stupid. And the scary part is what you see happening at all these board meetings across the country. 
you know, I, I just watched a fresh batch of videos from this week, you know, of these people disrupting, you know, or trying mm. to break into school board meetings and standing outside the door and screaming. That's weaponized hatred. Those guys, it goes beyond Trump. You know, those guys have been weaponized by Putin and Facebook, right? And we learned this week that Mark Zuckerberg cut a side deal with Jared Kushner over dinner while Trump was in the White House, that they wouldn't put any kind of disclaimers on political ads on Facebook, you know, on all this conspiracy shit in exchange for like a lack of any sort of oversight. So Mark Zuckerberg cut a deal so he could retain his billion dollars, who also, by the way, in a settlement they had to pay out, paid an extra like $100 million so Mark himself wouldn't have to testify or be liable, you know, or get deposed or anything. Like, so mm -hmm. his own shareholders are suing him for that because he basically overpaid to protect himself, you know, in a legal settlement. So, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is a Bond villain, okay? We've known that since Harvard days, right? He invented the thing to rate women on campus because he was a dork who couldn't get laid, you know? And what <laughs> happens to he? So he was, in many ways, he was the first incel, right? The first mediocre white guy who weaponized social media to make himself feel powerful and intertwined it with misogyny. And Trump is, a, is a, you know, a born misogynist. His whole thing was misogyny, you know, Miss Teen USA. What the hell is that? You're going to fly in 15 year old girls from all over the country, put them in a bikini at Atlantic City and get middle aged men to judge them and say which one they think is the winner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the yeah. winner, that's the one you want to sleep with the most. You know, that one's the hottest. Like it's insane to begin with. And we're a culture of misogyny and patriarchy and just unemotionally matured males, you know, and, and they've traditionally run this country. And so Facebook, by not putting disclaimers on this stuff, allowed these people to be weaponized. You know, all this anti-vax, don't wear a mask stuff, that's a direct result of Facebook. And that started before Trump even came to office. You started hearing about that around the Tea Party era. Because the Koch brothers also saw there was a lot of money to be made in radicalizing this base of sort of middle class, lower middle class Americans and upper middle class, too. You know, now everyone's in on it. You know, right. like I know really wealthy white people that are full on MAGA guys. Some of them are just skeptical New Yorkers who care about the stock market and they're misogynistic, too. And they, they were sort of groomed to hate Hillary forever. And they're sort of quietly racist. You know, they're, they're like New England racist. You belong to a nice country club and you just don't hang out with any people who aren't other white wasps, you know, and you don't yeah. consider yourself like a shit kicker racist. You know, like putting on a hood like they do down in Indiana, right? One of the capitals of the KKK. I guess I'm going after Indiana today. But um, my point is this stuff was weaponized. And now these guys are soldiers, okay? These people that are attacking these school board meetings, these idiots that were in Arizona the other day, still having these rallies about the recounts, right? And Trump lost. Right. Like, all the, the only result of that was that Biden got more votes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, but that's where we're at, Jimmy. And it's dangerous. Okay. And anybody who's asleep on it right now is going to be in for a rude awakening during yeah. the next election, the congressional and God forbid the presidential election that's coming in 2024. I mean, I, I shudder to think about the hell that this country is going to go through. I think the thing that really concerns me about the whole Facebook debacle is like, you had the micro-targeting that we've talked about on this podcast before with Jared Kushner getting his friends from Silicon Valley to 
target specific sections of the country, right? This wasn't an onslaught that went to 300 million Americans and only 10 million of them bought in. They, it was specific to an area because the GOP knows they still have the Electoral College. All they have to do is locate these little pockets. And instead of having to target, like I said, 300 million people, you only have to target 25,000 people and hope that 5,000 of them don't show up. That's how slim these margins are becoming. And if the popular vote were the determination of the presidential election, we wouldn't have to worry about that as much. But the and Republicans it, know that. And yeah. it, should, it should be the popular vote. Having it be the popular vote is the only way that we could really defend now against sort of claims of voter fraud. Because part of the problem is that you can't say that the Republicans cheated now, which I believe they did in many districts. I don't think Lindsey Graham has won a fair election in a long time. You know, I have questions about Mitch McConnell, but you raise those questions and now the Democrats will attack you. You sound just like QAnon. You sound just like conspiracy. When in, in reality, like the Republicans have been cheating in elections since 2000, right? You know, mm -hmm. Gore Bush. 2004, Diebold, whatever the company's name is, like promised to deliver the election for Bush in Ohio. It's a conservative Ohio-based company that's now changed its name, but they make a lot of these election machines, right? So the Republicans were pulling hanky stuff, you know, Governor Kemp, who was a secretary of state, who made it an unlevel playing field for Stace, against Stacey Abrams, Ron DeSantis down in Florida. So these guys have been getting into office by cheating for a long time. And now you can't even call them on that because they got in front of that issue. And that's what Trump does. It's like the pedophilia stuff. Trump knows he's a predator. He knows he slept with underage girls. The people mm -hmm. close to him know it. Putin knows it. He's got fucking tapes of it from Trump doing it for decades and Jeffrey Epstein. But you type in Trump and Epstein into Twitter and you're going to get hit with bots and MAGA people going, Biden's the pedophile. No, he's not. You know, you know what I mean? That's insane. But like, mm -hmm. so my point is that's the danger is you're not even going to be able to call them on these districts. And now the Republicans are becoming secretaries of state in all of these counties, in all of these states. So the guys that supported that Trump actually won and the election was fake are going to be in charge next time. And what do you think they're going to do with the results? And to go back to your point, you know, about Facebook and the micro-targeting, I don't think a lot of people ever really grasped that, but that's what Kushner did. Kushner and, and Mark Zuckerberg overlapped at Harvard, okay? They were there at the same time. They're three years apart. I think Kushner's 37, Zuckerberg's 40, but they were in the same era of Harvard guys that went out to Silicon Valley and made a fortune in social media, right? So Kushner called up those guys in 2016, as I've said often, and said, how do I get these guys in Michigan that voted for Obama, that work a union job, but also have a pickup truck and listen to Kid Rock and probably skew racist and play Call of Duty or whatever it is, you know, have a <laughs> bunch of guns. You know, it's not easy to pick out who you got to target. And then they started hitting those guys on Facebook, you right. know, conspiracy stuff with that Hillary's running a sex ring and a pizza parlor and Hillary's emails and Benghazi. Trump killed 600,000 Americans as president. They don't mention right. it, right? But they mentioned Benghazi. Dudes have tattoos of Benghazi on themselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're weaponized in a way we've never seen before. We're in uncharted territory. January 6th looked you know, it was insane. And that was just the beginning. As I said at the top of the show, Trump's having a rally tonight. 
Okay, the guy who got thousands of people to attack the Capitol eight, nine months ago is having a party tonight in Georgia. You know, he should have slunk away in the distance. He should have been arrested on January 7th. Okay, he should have been perp marked out of there, perp walked, but they're not going to do it. You know, and everyone kind of knows they're not going to do it. You know, that's the scary part now is that like people will say, oh, just hold on. Justice is coming. Justice will be served. No, he's 75 years old, dude. He already got away with this stuff. Even if you arrest him tomorrow, what is he going to go to jail for? Five, 10 years? Do you know what I'm saying? The dude started raping people in the 70s. He started laundering money for the mob in the early 80s. The guy has been a scumbag forever, but he's basically untouchable. And a lot of people don't want to admit that at this point. They don't want to admit that the system that protects Donald Trump also protects them. Okay, and if you start pulling on that stitch in that sweater, the whole thing unravels. Right. So so people are like, well, we kind of got to let him do that. Merrick Garland, all these guys, they're kind of like partial to the Federalist Society, Christopher Ray, all these guys. So they're just kind of like, well, what are we going to do about it? Let's just go back to the way things were. There is no going back to the way things were, Jimmy. Okay. Atlantic City doesn't get to be pre-Trump Atlantic City after he goes there, opens a bunch of casinos, runs them into the ground. They have to demolish the buildings and then they have big pits of empty land. That's what Trump has done to this country. He's pockmarked it. He's laid landmines from one coast to the other that will continue to explode. You know, people still die in Cambodia 40, 50 years after we stopped being there because we left the landmines in the jungle and little kids walk over them and lose their limbs. Politically, that's exactly what he's done. That's what we mm-hmm. saw with Afghanistan, a tripwire, right? That's what we're seeing with Haiti, right? How did, how did 15,000 people end up at the border in Haiti? Because they were in Brazil working after the Olympics and somehow somebody went down there, perhaps Jason Miller, who was just there two weeks ago, you know, <laughs> and gave instructions for these guys to end up under a bridge in Texas. I think that's the thing that really concerns me even about this January 6th, you know, House commission. Like part of me has hope because you have Liz Cheney there, you have another Republican there. But then the other part of me is like the GOP's involved with this. You know, how big of a scope of an investigation are they actually going to do? Because nobody on that side wants to rock the boat. Yeah, Liz Cheney believes in democracy, but she went along with practically everything else. You know, I, I just... I don't, I don't see, I don't see anything coming of it, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, nothing. They got, well, yeah. you'll find out. They subpoenaed these guys. If Mark Meadows shows up and testifies, Cash Patel, Steve Bannon sits in front of Congress. You know, he's such a narcissist that he may, you know, Bannon may do that because he knows like his boss, there's no such thing as bad press and what he's already been pardoned and stuff. Mm-hmm. He had a meth lab in Miami at one point. There's a great article on this house <laughs> that was living in, in Miami. I mean, he's just scum of the earth. And the, the Haiti thing will go uninvestigated, sure. right? We've moved them out of there now, but Fox News is still running these pictures, you know, of these guys living under the bridge. We had one of the most despicable things I've ever seen in American history, which was the guys on horses with their reins whipping at fellow human beings. And a lot of people don't even understand Haiti. You know, Haiti got its independence from France and they had to pay reparations to France. They won their freedom and France was like, okay, you can have your freedom, but you got to pay back all the slave owners for the money that, you know, they invested in you essentially. And that's why Haiti's never been able to recover economically. 
you know, and then they had all these corrupt dictators, Papa Doc and all these dudes forever. But it's the same sort of like colonial white supremacy racism that has screwed the beautiful people of Haiti forever. And my grandparents built schools in Haiti, wells, you know, host all these Haitian priests and stuff all the time. My, my grandparents have deep roots in Haiti. They're not missionaries or anything. They're just good people that spent their retirement kind of down there doing what they can do. And, and I've gotten to work with a lot of Haitian artists from choirs to Wyclef and stuff. There's such a beautiful spirit in those people, you know, or in Haitians. I don't mean those, you know what I mean? Like it, they would make Texas much better is my point. Let them in, learn something from them, treat other human beings with love and compassion and respect, right? Go beyond the programming of they don't look like me, can't let them in here. First of all, you stole the, you know, that state from Mexico to begin with, okay? <laughs> Texas, no one's ever suffered from self-mythologization, you know, more than Texans, right? They've always been like, well, don't mess with Texas, we're great. Right now, you're taking your orders from a 75-year-old dude from Queens, New York in a diaper, okay? <laughs> and he's telling a little rabid weasel what to do. And Texas is about to do its own recount on the election. Governor Abbott is a yo-yo controlled by like right-wing extremists and oil companies, okay? And he's, he's got no moral backbone. He tweeted yesterday that like COVID cases were at their lowest point in six weeks. No shit, because the people are dying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your, your beds are opening up because people are now dying of COVID. It's despicable. And people need to look at the myths they've been sold. You know, we've discussed it all the time on the show. Every time I say something about Texas, stop criticizing us. There's a bunch of good people here. No shit. But it's a generalization. And you good people haven't done fuck all about it at this point. You're not surrounding the Capitol in Texas. You haven't stopped any of these things. They're pulling draconian stuff day after day. Don't get on my Twitter and get in my replies. Do something about it. I'm going <laughs> to keep calling you out on your bullshit. You know, do something. Well, and Governor Abbott, when these anti-abortion bills were put through, he's like, we're going to stop all the rapists. Oh, afterwards? You right. know, like, he's that way. And, you know, no, I, I don't know if you know this about me. We, we've talked about it before, but one of the best things I've ever done in my life to this point is volunteer for a uh, organization out of Indianapolis called Timmy Global Health. And a lot of the work that they do is in Haiti, you know, like, it's an entirely different level of poverty. And then you have a, a hurricane or a natural disaster hit a place like that. It just adds to the suffering for a place like Haiti. And we saw how Trump treated people at the border and Puerto Rico. You know, they're still in shambles. It's not a surprise that these Haitians were treated that way by those law enforcement officers, because that's what that's the kind of behavior Trump tolerated. <laughs> Well, I know Haiti's yeah. always been the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And the right. main reason is that yeah. won their freedom, you know, and then right. had to pay back their own, their slave owners. Like that's insane. Enslaved people ownership. And you're right. right. They never recovered from the earthquake in 2010. I did a big fundraiser with George Clooney. He organized this massive fundraiser and we did a big like live telethon and we had Sting and the Roots and, you know, all this like great artists and raised a bunch of money. And Americans kicked in a bunch of money and the Red Cross basically kept it from themselves. So this last hurricane and earthquake, people are like, don't send money to the Red Cross, right? They siphoned off the money and paid their own salaries and paid for their big headquarters in D.C. Another grift. It wouldn't 
take that much money to, to cure Haiti. And if these were Cubans, they'd be welcomed with open arms in South Florida because they'd be hardcore, you know, right wingers who would vote Republicans. If those Haitians, you know, if they thought that they would be Republican voters, they'd be setting them up in Texas. They'd be taking them in. They're politicizing human beings and human suffering. Okay. And, and it's just, it's so cynical. The whole thing, Mitch McConnell, you know, the fact that nobody's ever gone after Mitch McConnell, who's basically owned by Oleg Deripaska, who owns a company called Russell, which is Russian aluminum, okay, and it's direct ties to the Kremlin. He was the go-between when Paul Manafort was getting all this Russian money and Russian interference in our last election. The, the two guys who voted to, like, not put any further sanctions on Russia were Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul you know, from Kentucky, <laughs> like, cause, cause they're promising to open a factory, which is yet to open in Kentucky, but it pumps money into the state. And Mitch McConnell knows he's untouchable, right? He, he, he just continues to screw with the Democrats. He, he's going to vote against raising the debt ceiling, which he did himself like 33 times. It's the same thing. You know, if a Republican, you know, when Trump was in office, what did he increase the debt by $7 trillion or something? And their buddies yeah. all took it. You know, Steve Mnuchin and all these guys cut themselves fat checks and rode off into the sunset. And, and you got to get, we got to get angry as Democrats. And I don't mean this anger of spittle and flecked MAGA idiots showing up right. as Karens in CVS, but we need to get intellectually angry and examine a country that has created so many dumbasses. We always laughed about this stuff, you know, but it was never funny. It's not funny to let Reagan do what he did to this country and defund the arts, deregulate mental institutions and create homelessness to allow the NRA to become a terrorist organization warping the minds of Americans. You don't need guns. You don't need guns in the numbers you have them. You don't need weapons of war, right? There was a mass shooting this week, got zero coverage. It was in like Tennessee. Somebody walked in, shot 13 people in a Kroger. One person died. It wasn't in a single Twitter feed of mine because we've been oh, only one person, right? It's a mass shooting. It should mm -hmm. be horrific to every sentient being, but we've accepted it. And that's what, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that Trump knows that he'll wear people down and eventually you will accept these things that at one point were unacceptable. That's what happens in addiction. Right. If you're an addict, an alcoholic and a drug addict, you think like, I'm never going to do that. And then you find yourself doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a moral degradation. And that's what's happening to this country. We're being demoralized and we're allowing these cynical old white men and kooky younger women. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, like attacked Representative Dingell on the steps of the Congress yesterday, where I used to work as a courier on the mm -hmm. steps, called her a baby killer. You think Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Christian? You think she really cares about unwill, right? unborn yeah. babies? All these Texans that are so anti-abortion, you didn't give a shit about these Haitians that are sitting there with their babies saying, my baby's hungry, you know, and just walked across a couple, you know, continents and countries to get here. Where's your Christian hearts right then? Where were you bringing them into your homes and feeding them? That's what they did with Jesus and Mary, right? Uh, you're not Christians. You're terrorists. You're terrorists, okay? You're a white supremacist terrorist if you're a member of the modern GOP, period. And if you're listening to somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert, 
it's going to not end well for you. Those are crazy criminal people that are very bad and being manipulated by powers that you can't even comprehend because your little mind never got past a pickup truck and a fucking gun and a stupid flag thinking you're some hero because you fought in a war for an oil company. Well, I uh, heard Malcolm Nance talk about what had happened in Afghanistan. And, you know, I care about those 13 soldiers and what happened to them that day. But it's really disappointing when you see Jim Jordan or these other chaos agents every day caring more about 13 soldiers dying in a battlefield than their own damn constituents in their own district. Like, I, I get it. I get it. But it's just a divide. It's further divide people. Man. They don't care about these soldiers. They care about the fact that they can use these soldiers to gin up this false patriotism and right. easily manipulated people. Cause then they'll put a picture on the pole in the town and you say, salute our heroes and you feel good about yourself and you share the videos. Not that they're not heroes. Okay. But like, a lot of people join the services because they don't have any other options. That's, you know, it's not rich kids going to fight wars. Some of them end up going to the Naval Academy, you know, or West Point, and then they become Mike Pompeo's. They're doing that for political power. They're not the guys on the front lines, right? Yeah. But so it's cynical. Jim Jordan, you know, these guys are scumbags. Dan Crenshaw, these guys are not a hero. He's a cartoon character. And without a gerrymandered district, he wouldn't even be in Congress. None of these. Same with Jim Jordan. You want to talk mm -hmm. about a gerrymandered district. You know, and Jim Jordan should obviously be in jail for allowing students to get molested by his coach. And he couldn't stand up for wrestlers. If you can't stand up for kids in a college getting abused in a shower, do I really supposed to buy that you're standing up for a bunch of soldiers on the battlefield that you would have sent there in a heartbeat? You know, well, and Jim, um, George Clooney is going to have a film about that, isn't he? He's I thought he was producing one. He is a documentary. Yeah. I can't wait for it to come out, you know, but yeah. it's more of the same. Yeah. That, the, the, the larger point I'm trying to make is that the right has been so brainwashed. They don't accept anything yeah. anymore. They're not, they, if you don't think, if you can't see clearly who Trump is just on the sexual predation stuff, then, yeah. then you're, you're be, and I get those messages every day. Like Biden's the pedophile, blah, blah, blah. I mean, these people are brainwashed and they think they're fighting a holy war. It's the same thing as somebody who straps a bomb on themselves and gets on a bus in Israel. These people are broken. They're broken. Americans are broken now. The anger in this country. You know, I live on a road where you have to pull off kind of a main road to pull in my driveway. And whenever I have to stop to make a left into my driveway, the car behind me, you can just feel they're angry that they have to stop for a second. And when you finally make the turn, they always rev their engine like super loud to show their displeasure and peel away. What happened to America that we do that now? And that's a common occurrence. That's every time I get in the car. There's no more like, hey, that's my neighbor. That could be my grandmother. That could be my kid's teacher turning into that. You know, why don't I wait 30 seconds? No, it's this aggressive, toxic, oh, you got in my way. Anger. This thing that used to just be reserved for like getting on the subway in New York City is now <laughs> like, dude, you're pulling into Party Central in a suburban strip mall. Like, what are you so mad about? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it's that anger. You know, that that is a sickness and a disease in this country. And Trump is a master at exploiting that. And now there's a thousand Trumps, right? There's Trumps everywhere. And the more they scream on videos and stuff, the more likes they get, 
the more coverage they get. Nobody knew who Lauren Boebert was a couple of years ago. Now she's a household name. She didn't even get her, she got her yeah. GED. She can't spell impeach. You know what I mean? And she's bought by an oil company. She's only there to allow like mineral interests to take over in Colorado. She's selling out a state of natural beauty for fame and fortune. Yeah. And, and we're letting it and people are cheering it on, you know, and also people on the left, they don't really know what to do with, about it. Donate to me, make another video. I'll fight back. Nope. You're just part of the same thing. We haven't found the solution for this yet. And we're looking to old ways to solve this. It ain't going to happen. The people who have so much faith in the justice department tend to be older white people, <laughs> right? Well, and um, it wasn't like when A.G. Garland walked in, you know, he cleaned house with the DOJ. He kept most of the people there. Okay. <laughs> you know, and just personally, I knew the country was broken when you had a kid wheelchair bound begging his school board to allow him to go to school so that he could learn. People with disabilities shouldn't have to beg for an education and have basic common decency, not just for themselves, but for their classmates. You know, like... The things we're asking for is fulfilling the social contract that our country promised us when we were born here. <laughs> it's nothing more than what anyone would expect from a decent society. Yeah, That's but it. they view it as an entitlement, Jimmy. Right, because they're only entitled to an education as a white man. Right. I know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's uh, we're in a dangerous place. Uh, we can't it can't be um, exaggerated anymore. We're there. No, it's scary. It's scary. It's as scary as the ghost story I told last week, which apparently the viewers liked, you know? Yeah, yeah. Have, have you ever seen The Exorcist, Jimmy? Only parts. And I saw it when, when the head turned around 180 degrees. So that that's still scarred in the memory pretty good. <laughs> you know, that thing, uh, the, the Exorcist was filmed in Georgetown, the movie, right? The William, really? William Friedkin movie. Yeah. But cool. the actual Exorcist was based on a real thing. And it was something that people believed really happened. And I lived in the town called Mount Rainier, Maryland, where the real exorcist happened in the late 60s. And it happened to a kid. It wasn't a, a boy who apparently moved to Ohio and stuff. But uh, obviously, right? but uh, <laughs> this was the lore of the town. So when you lived in Maryland, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, you always heard about the real exorcist. Or if you were near there, you did. So I moved to that town in seventh grade. And I went to like Cotillion at this Catholic church where the real priests performed this thing in the late 60s. And it was a boy. As I said, it was like a teenage boy and they thought he was possessed. And two priests from the local parish, you know, diocese or whatever, went and performed an exorcism. And I'm not saying that part's real because like, really, the devil, you know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. that's all superstition stuff <laughs> anyway. But this was a real story in this town, right? And apparently, like, they performed the exorcism. The house that it happened in burned down, like, the next day. And it was on this plot of land that was considered hallowed ground when I lived there. We're talking 1983 or something, 82. And everyone knew, like, that was the exorcist's house. So when I moved to this town, I had some friends who lived across the street. I remember sitting on their porch and being like, is that the exorcist plot? You know, I was, like, fascinated by it. And they would tell me the stories. And, like... So the two priests performed the exorcism. One of them had a heart attack, like performing the exorcism like, and died, right? Then the house burned down. Then the other priest didn't speak about it again for like 15 years. And then mm -hmm. he spoke about it at Sunday mass once, like 15 years later. And then like he died. 
like in his sleep that night. So the whole town was like freaked out about this. Okay. So I had a friend, I moved to this town in like seventh grade and it's right on the border of DC. And I had a friend who came to visit me from my old neighborhood, my best friend, Abdullah. And uh, he came to visit me and I was like, Hey, you want to go see the exorcist house? And it was like this time of year, you know, it was like October. There's no leaves <laughs> on the trees. It was like spooky. This town is like old Maryland kind of, you know, old little Victorian homes and stuff kind of just time forgotten stuff at the time, you know? So it was already kind of spooky. And I was like, let's go see the exorcist house. And it was dark, you know, it was like seven, eight at night. And I walk him up there and we're across the street. And I'm like, there it is, dude. There's the plot of land that it happened on. And he was already freaked out. And I was like, let's cross the street. Come on, let's get a little closer. And I get him to cross the street. And the plot was like stone walls. And then this just grass that people didn't even mow, just like weeds and stuff. And I get him across the street up to the wall. And I'm like, check this out. Isn't this creepy? And he's like, man, we should get out of here right now. I was like, let's walk up on there. And he's like, no, dude, no. You know, and I'm like, come on, let's climb up on there. He's like, no. And I hop up on there. And I'm like, Satan, come into me, come into me now. <laughs> and he freaked out and ran like three blocks, whatever. He was like three blocks in 40 seconds. He was just screaming and running the other direction. It freaked him out and scared him so bad, you know? <laughs> so that's Power not Christ compels you. Exactly. So would you be scared in that circumstance, Jimmy? A hundred percent. You're never seeing me again. <laughs> exactly. That's how my man was. He was back. He, got, he ran, ran all the way back to my house and was just like, you motherfucker. But I thought it was funny, you know, and because uh, I'd already seen ghosts and stuff, you know, like I'm not really scared of that sort of thing. And I certainly don't believe in the devil, but they believe in this in this town. You know, they do. Yeah. So and and, you know, the exorcist was, was probably the greatest horror movie ever you should watch it if you like that stuff it's pretty scary it's been a long time yeah uh, i watched um this is the end where they do a parody of that scene you know nice. uh, and power crisis isn't that compelling <laughs> you know they like make fun of it and all that um do you we talked about reincarnation uh last week i have a quick one um after my grandfather died uh, of cancer Everybody started seeing um, praying mantises everywhere, you know, in, in a couple of weeks after my grandpa had passed. And uh, one day my grandma gets in her car and there's a praying mantis on her windshield, right? And she drives, gets gas, goes to bingo, because that's what she would do after my grandfather passed, stayed on her car. And then she gets done with bingo, ends up winning. And there's a um, praying mantis on her bingo card, <laughs> you know, and then couple weeks after that my aunt bought a new house there was a praying mantis on the mailbox around this time of year there's always praying mantises around my house for my birthday you know so another example of my family we think they're around when we see pieces of nature like that in critical times especially shortly after we lose somebody so Absolutely. I just wanted to share that with, with everyone. Yeah, man. And I love praying mantises. I have them all over my property and they're deeply spiritual. You know, they're praying mantises. <laughs> you know, I just right. saw one the other day. Last year, one of them crawled on my head and I did a video and put it on Twitter of the praying mantis. That was yeah. going to be my original podcast host was going to be a praying mantis. You know, <laughs> and they I come and hang out at my studio and stuff. You should watch their heads, how they move. You know, there's such intelligence in nature. People yeah. think like, oh, humans are the only smart creatures. It's not even close. An octopus is like incredibly complex. It's like a, an elephant or something. All of these creatures are. 
from chipmunks to bugs to butterflies, ants. Step on an ant and see what the other ants do. You know, they go and freak out and get the body and bring it back to their thing. Like if it has eyes and it's moving, it's the same sort of thing. And even if it isn't, trees are talk to each other during for their root systems and stuff. Trees are living creatures. There's so much presence in trees. You should read Luna, Legacy of Luna. Do you know who Julia Butterfly Hill is? Um, I haven't heard of her. Yeah, she's before yeah. your time. She's a hero who went and climbed up in this redwood tree that they were going to cut down that this logging company was going to cut down like this 200-year-old tree. Oh. So as a form of protest, she climbed up into the tree and stayed there for like a year. So the lumber company couldn't cut down this tree called Luna. And then she was in this old growth forest and got hip to the energy that trees have. Trees are living creatures. Trees are just as alive as you and me, Jimmy. And they have a lot of energy and stillness. Like I'm a tree hugger. In a literal sense, I will hug a tree because I can feel the energy. You know, I have a tree out in my yard that's something like 1853. The house was built in 1853, and I'm assuming that the tree is pretty, like, not long after that. You know, so this mm -hmm. tree was on the property when Lincoln was president, and it's still growing, and it still has green leaves every spring, you know, and it's still about to drop its leaves. And there's just, there's wisdom in nature. And when you lose it, you know, I read this horrible article this week in Brazil and Ecuador, they're cutting down big swaths of rainforest to build military bases now because they want oil companies to come in there and they want to be able to promise them mm. that they'll be protected, you know, their economic interests. And, and that's just stunningly irresponsible and will be the death of our planet, you know, because that sort of thing is happening everywhere. Climate change is on us now. And the rainforest is like the earth's lungs. And we've been almost seeded that battle, right? When I was a kid, it was save the rainforest and stuff, you know, and now you barely even hear about that, you know, because you got Bolsonaro and all these dictators in the Southern hemisphere now, because Trump, what Trump did is a global thing now. Putin didn't have to win the Cold War. He's won this war, you know, in a way, or he's, he's winning this war. You know, he's allowing the sort of authoritarian oligarchy system to become very appealing on large parts of this globe. And it's being fueled by anger and disenfranchisement that isn't real. You know what I'm saying? Like people think they're not getting theirs, but they are. You wake up in the morning, you got yours. If the sun comes up and you're breathing, there's hope in your life. If your heart's beaten, you got a chance at redemption. You know, it's one day at a time. We should view this the way you view addiction. When, when, you're, when you're trying to get sober, you don't think about like, well, how am I not going to drink at my wedding if I give up drinking today? No, you just give up drinking today. Your life becomes 24 hours at a time. What's the next right action I need to do? You know, where are my feet right now? How do I stay present? And that's what nature can teach us. Tree knows where its roots are. Trees sitting, you know, a tree bends in the high winds. It doesn't get brittle and break off. It bends, it changes. And that's what we need to do. We need to understand that everything that we experience isn't necessarily out to hurt us because mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff is based on fear. That's what Trump and these guys manipulate, fear. Haitians are coming to, no, they're not coming to do anything to you. They're looking for a safe place to raise their kids and a decent place to live and work and contribute to society. They will be heroes. Let them in, right? 
Ted Cruz is not a hero. You know, these skeptical men that are trying to gin up this kind of racial hatred. Fox News has gone full white nationalist. You know, Tucker Carlson was talking about eugenics this week in response to Haitians, saying they're trying to replace white people. Okay. And if you had to replace anybody, I'd start with the white people. Right. Like, (laughs) as I always say, go do white people shit. No one's getting rid of you. Just go hang out on the golf course, play golf, step aside, (laughs) let other people lead. Right. You know, why do you have to dominate the whole thing forever? Our track record basically sucks anyway. You know, like, (laughs) oh, yeah, another white man in charge. It's worked out so well for so long. Fuck that. You know what I'm saying? Well, I would compare it to like physical therapy. You know, when I was two or three years old, uh, up until the time I was in my teenage years, you did physical therapy every day so that by the time I'm an adult now at 27, I don't necessarily need a walker to get from point A to point B. Like, that's life. That's that's how you grow as a person. You need to experience suffering at some degree in order to have better understanding of the world around you. We've put so many people in cocoons of comfort, including adults. I saw some of those videos from the school board meetings, man. They're banging on the doors. They're children that never grew up. That's what happened. Exactly. That's well and, and it's and it's as a 27-year-old, I'm looking at these 50 and 60-year-olds like, who the hell raised you? <laughs> How did this happen to you at this point? Yeah. Who hurt you? As people say, a lot yeah. of people hurt and, and suffering is part of life. That's what the Buddha talked about. And you just have to sort of accept this and surround everything with awareness and presence and you'll get through it. It's mm-hmm. almost the avoidance of pain has become, you know, an ap- epidemic. You know, people think their lives are just supposed to be so easy and they live in so much fear that they're willing to screw other people out of their shot at happiness because they're coming from like a viewpoint of like i have to kill them before they kill us you know it's this caveman mentality where nobody has like the ability to sort of live in harmony anymore walk out with a brave open heart in the world what do you think's gonna happen what's gonna happen show up for love you know, love without attachment. People think love is like, I'm in love with her and I'm shutting everything else out. I got to do for mine and my family. Yeah, you provide for the people around you, but real love, love without attachment is a love for everything. You know, it's like saying, I like the violin and blocking out the rest of the symphony and calling that love. That's not love. That's an attachment. That's a mental state that's going to keep you locked in to a certain way of thinking, and it's going to do the opposite of what real love is. It's going to block you out to, uh, from the symphony of life, right? It's going to make you think, oh, I don't have to accept and open my heart to these Haitians because I'm protecting my white Christian family up in Abilene here. That's not love. You've closed yourself off to life. Life is giving you love and the opportunity to love because that's what we're here to do. We're here to love, Jimmy. That's it. And, and, and live our potential in the hopes that that will inspire and help others. You're here to help somebody else. You're not here to get yours because you can't take it with you. The only thing you can take with you is love. That's the only legacy we really have. Nobody cares how much money you made on the other side, you know? And if you screwed people over to make that money, you got another thing coming. You're poor. That's poverty. That's not love economic success is not love it doesn't fill you up in in, in, inside you know and we live in a land that values that above all else right Mm -hmm. 
Everyone's like, I'm going to be a billionaire. I know, you know, I got like seven billionaires live in my town. None of them are like, oh, that's a great dude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hardly any of them because money kind of like shuts you off from understanding how it really works. Because then you think, well, I have all this money. I have to keep protecting it. I have to keep growing it. Well, and, you know, my dad was an entertainer in Indianapolis around the state of Indiana and would go to Illinois or Ohio for an occasional gig, but he always wanted to come home. You know, he wasn't about touring or having a career in music because he valued his family and he viewed himself as successful because he raised me and he was a good husband to his wife. You know, that should be good enough for a majority of Americans to just be a good person and to try to elevate your community. Not everybody's going to be Elvis Presley. <laughs> and the sooner you accept that, the sooner you can see the beauty in what is around your little part of the world. Yeah. And Elvis Presley dated a 15 year old, you know, and right. used his limo to drop her off at high school when she was living at Graceland. <laughs> you know, yeah. he waited till she was 21 to marry her. But like, try getting away with that today, Elvis. No <laughs> right. Not yeah. to mention he was a racist and he stole his music from black folks. You know, mm -hmm. there's that little element, too. You know, not saying <laughs> yeah. Elvis wasn't good, but anyway, yeah, I like Ricky Nelson. I was a Ricky Nelson guy. Stephen Stills told me that too. He's like, from my money, he was better than Elvis. And I agree. But mm -hmm. um, Elvis had a great guitar player. And speaking of guitar players, I talked about Eric Clapton last week. Yeah. Uh, I guess I told people I'd tell the rest of the story. So oh, Clapton, God knows what happened to him because he was a good <laughs> dude in sobriety. You know, he had long-term sobriety. He funds a rehab called Crossroads down in Antigua. A lot of my friends have gone through that program. I, I thought he was a basically a decent guy. And when I worked with him, he was auctioning off a big chunk of his guitar collection to have the proceeds go to Crossroads, which is a rehab, you know? Right. So he was basically always a good dude in my book until his last year. And I know about when he was a drunk and all that kind of stuff and his racist tirades, which were awful. And he shouldn't have gotten away with at the time. You know, and it shows you sort of white rock and roll privilege because the guy was going out on stage, getting drunk and berating his fans and stuff. And he kept touring. Robert Stigwood, his manager, kept him on the road and venues kept booking him because it was the 70s and nobody cared. Today, if you showed up that drunk and on drugs at a gig, like you wouldn't have the next gig. I remember I was in, in Sweden doing a show with Jackson Brown. And the guy, like the PA guy, local runner who was working with me goes, yeah, last night we had Whitney Houston here. And I'm like, Whitney Houston, why did you have Whitney? And I love Whitney, you know, I, and I'll tell you Whitney stories. I worked on shows with Whitney. Uh, I stayed in Telluride in the same inn, like uh, fancy hotel she was at once. I loved Whitney Houston, but she was suffering from really bad drug addiction, obviously in her final years, you know, and right. this was towards the end. And I'm like, what do you mean you had Whitney Houston here? She shouldn't be on the road. And he's like, yeah, some manager booked her. We did a gig and he showed me video and it was like, she barely got through one song, mm -hmm. you know, and it was just incoherent and awful. And I remember being like, God, like who's allowing this? It was the same thing with the girl, like that, the British singer, my buddy was playing drums in a band with her and she was like on the road. And I was Amy like, Winehouse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She was on the road one summer and I was like, she's going to be dead. Like he sent me videos of like, look, she could did one song and then sat down on the stage drunk and she was dead with any, you know what I mean? Right. Like, so my point is, if you got really bad drug and alcohol problems, you have no business being on the road. But the 70s, it was an industry where people were making money off it and everybody was kind of on drugs anyway. Right. 
So Clapton got away with all that stuff. He eventually gets sober. He's a guitar player. I'm a guitar player. So you have a lot of reverence for Clapton. So we end up on this show together called Cheryl Crow and Friends. And it was in 1999 and it was a big concert in Central Park. It was live on VH1 or something like that. And you had uh, Sandra Bullock was there. I think she was hosting, not Sandra Bullock, Sandra Bernhardt, <laughs> the great Sandra Bernhardt, the comic. And uh, you had the Dixie Chicks who were brand new. I got mm -hmm. to work with them. They, they sort of had the, they had the number one album in the country that week. Wide Open Spaces had just come out. You had Sheryl Crow, obviously, was like the main act. And then you had like Clapton and Keith Richards. OK, so I got to I had to deal with all these people and Bill Murray and Bill Murray <laughs> was a trip. And, and like I had to try to bring Bill Murray on stage to rehearse and he wouldn't like he's like, no, I'm not going to rehearse. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And I'm like, no, they're making you come on, please come rehearse. He's like, do you guys even know who I am? Have you seen Saturday Night Live? Like, I'm not rehearsing, you know? You hired Bill Murray. I'm going to go out there. Like, he was not playing the Hollywood BS game. And I was the poor schmuck who had to try to get him to go on stage, you know, and rehearse his intro or something. And it wasn't happening. And I ran into him at the party later. And he got off an elevator. It was at the Four Seasons in the basement in New York. And he gets off the elevator. He's got, like, three beautiful women on each arm or something. And I was like, Hey, Bill, sorry. I'm the guy who had to be a dick to you earlier about going on. <laughs> it's like, sorry, I was a dick to you too. <laughs> and I was like, nobody's cooler than Bill Murray. Right. But we're doing this whole gig. And like the rehearsal was the day before it was in central park, like North lawn area. And uh, the late John Cosette was producing it. His dad was Pierre Cosette who produced the Grammys forever and stuff. Legendary live TV people. So Real A team gig. And uh, they're like, Clapton's coming, you know, bring him to his trailer or whatever. So I bring him down to his trailer. He pops in there, pops out a minute later. And he's like, hey, I'm going to go for a walk in Central Park. And I'm like, OK, well, I got to go with you. Sorry, it's my job. So I had to sort of like trail him. And we end up like doing this little walk in Central Park, which was kind of awkward. Yeah, but he's Eric Clapton. So I'm like, all right, this is cool, you know? And then we go back, I get the call on the radio, like, all right, we're ready for him on stage. And we go back up to stage and uh, he gets ready to play, right? He's got his guitar tech there, hands him a guitar. There's a Leslie cabinet right on the backstage, which is a swirling speaker that he uses for his tone. Mm -hmm. And he's about to walk on stage and he's like, hey, what's your name again? I'm like, no. He's like, hey, no, I, I, I left my shirt down there in the trailer you know he had a t-shirt on he had like an overshirt and i said oh it'll be fine and he looks at me like no i'm like oh you want me to go get your shirt he's like yep you know right answer go get my shirt like he's mm -hmm. thinking about his armani shirt or whatever you know <laughs> so i run down get the shirt he goes on stage starts playing he's rehearsing he plays white room you know which is a cream song like just killing this guitar solo i'm basically sitting on the leslie cabinet at this point so i can feel the vibrations you know, of his playing and stuff. And he's a, you know, he's like a hero as a guitar player. And I'm holding this shirt and I went to drama school, right? So you have these sense memory kind of exercise things you do when you're playing a character. So I'm holding this rock legend shirt and I'm like, for some reason, I'm like, I wonder what he smells like. You know, like, I wonder <laughs> what like the cologne, like that Eric Clapton wears smells like. Cause I'm holding this guy's shirt, this rock <laughs> wailing on this solo. And I'm like, in my head, I'm having this dialogue and I'm like, I'm going to smell his shirt. Yeah. And I lift up his shirt and just like kind of sniff the collar. 
And I look over and this roadie is looking at me and he's just like, like, what is wrong with you? you know? <laughs> it was just funny. It was like the essence of clapping. You know, I wasn't like smelling the armpit. It was just like the call, you know, right. just like, who is that? You know, this guy. And he comes off stage and he's like, hey, tomorrow, you know, they sent a Mercedes for me today. That's too much. Just I'll get in a cab, have some pizza for me here on the side of the stage and I'm good. Thanks right. for your help, Noel. And he was chill. And I was like, wow, that was pretty chill, you know? And then Keith came and I've worked with Keith Richards before and like, hey, that's a whole different thing, but I love Keith. And uh, I, I don't know if I should tell the Keith part of this story now, but um, mm -hmm. you know, Keith is fun. Keith, like I had to give Keith an extra five minute warning to come out of his trailer on top of the 10 minutes to get to stage. And he finally comes out of his trailer and he's like, he, he makes like an airplane and he's like, Wah! like flying around in this big circle. And then he flies over to me and puts his arm around me and he goes, sorry, I just had to look at the park for a minute. I've done a lot of things here, but I've never played here before. And I was like, I'll bet you have. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. like he laughed that I got his, you know, his pirate joke. And then I brought him up, you know, to rehearse or whatever. And this was like the second night and Clapton was back, you know, at this point. And Clapton was sitting on an amp case on the far side of the stage, right? And I brought Keith up like stage left, Clapton's backstage, you know, stage right. So Keith goes and walks over to Clapton and sits down next to him on this amp case. And Clapton gets up without saying a word and walks away and completely disses Keith. And I'm sitting there with Keith's daughters, his wife. It was like embarrassing moment. Mm. And we're like, yeah. what a dick. And then they ended up getting in a fight, basically not physical, but like argument. Keith took off his watch that Clapton had given him at his wedding and threw it at Clapton. It was just like, screw you then, man. And they didn't talk again for 10 years. And I don't know what their beef was about. I've talked about it with other people. Essentially, it's not my business or anyone's business. It's right. personal. They've known each other since the early 60s. But um, my guess was it had something to do with like sobriety or something at the time, you know, but I think I have to like, look at that again. You know, I think that Clapton was the dick in that situation, you know, like, cause he just got up and walked away, dude. He didn't even be like, hey, Keith, I can't talk to you right now. Or I'm mad at you. He just dissed him. He just turned his back and walked away to Keith Richards, who's like the coolest guy in the world. Keith yeah. is the most down to earth of the Rolling Stones, you know, besides Ron Wood. But Keith is just like a man's man. He, he'll treat you like you're just his best friend when you just met him, kind of. He's not he doesn't have yeah. any airs. You know, when we would do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame back at the Waldorf, he'd be in there BSing with the guy in the bathroom, you know, who worked at the hotel just as much as he'd be BSing. With, uh, my favorite Keith story at the Rock Hall when we did those old things, the old inductions was Paul Simon was getting inducted for his solo career. Paul Simon's really long winded, not your favorite guy to work with. You know, I know he's a legend, but he's not. He's just he, he's he's Paul Simon. OK, and, uh, so Paul's giving like this boring, boring speech and he's like 20 minutes into it and everybody's kind of yawning. And Keith's at one of the front tables, obviously. And Keith just hops up and goes, I got to take a piss, mate. And just walks <laughs> out of the room. And everyone's dying because it was just so droning on about Paul Simon thinks a lot about Paul Simon. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. So uh, <laughs> but that's Keith, you know, like, hey, this is rock and roll. This isn't like a lecture at Yale Literary Society. You know what yeah. I mean? But uh, so Keith is the coolest guy, you know, and I but I'd always wondered about that moment. But seeing how 
Clapton has behaved in the last year. I'm just like, whatever Clapton did, screw him. And right. uh, the guy's obviously made some great music. Like, there's no question. You know, he's benefited from that same misogynistic atmosphere of rock and roll. You know, some of his best work was taken from others and women and things like that. But uh, that's the way it is. You know what I mean? That That's the world we're living in. And now, now we're not going to accept that kind of stuff anymore. So I don't know what point there is to my short it was a great party by the way the party yeah. after Cheryl Crow and friends we did it in the Central Park and oh Sarah McLaughlin was there who's one of my all-time favorite songwriters and just an incredible musician and we're at the after party and Jewel was there right and yeah. I had a crush on Jewel at the time like who did who I still do <laughs> you know right. but I'm like wow there's Jewel you know and I'm talking with Sarah McLaughlin I'm like I want to meet Jewel she's like I'm going to introduce you I'll bring you over. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you know? And she brings me over to Jewel and was like, hey, Jewel, this is my friend Noel or whatever. You know, he worked on the show. And I go, hey, Jewel, I was at Woodstock 99 a couple of weeks ago. I saw your performance. It was really good. And she just <laughs> looked at me like, oh, great. And walked away kind of. Oh, she, no. she thought I was one of those idiots who was like, show us your tits kind of thing. Cause she's like, oh, this guy's at Woodstock 99, like the worst gig in the history of gigs. <laughs> You know, and I was trying to make the point because she tried to calm down the crowd. She berated these idiot misogynists, you know, and I thought it was amazing how she kept her cool, you know, and her dignity in that instance and was still able to perform because as you saw, we discussed the dog, it was a nightmare. And I was trying to relay that, but I think I just, like I was probably 20, 30 at the time. This was 99, right? So I was <laughs> 28, you know, so she just saw me as like some knucklehead white dude, white boy who was at 99 and like smiling about what a great gig it was. So that's why Jewel and I aren't together to this day. Yeah. That's, that's the reason, man. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, you know, you got to meet her. That's, that's more than a lot of people get to do. She, Absolutely. No, she's yeah. great. She's great. They're all great. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And, uh, so that's about it for this week. You know, I'm looking for, you know, the, these rock and roll stories, I got a lot of them and I tell a lot of them in my live act. You know, I, I do a lot of jokes and then I, and then I kind of stretch out and tell some stories, the inspiring ones, you know, cause there's all kinds of great things that, that happen. And that's why I got in the music business and the entertainment business. I want to be inspired. You know, that's what art does. It's its best. You know, it helps us get through the day. Springsteen had a birthday this week. Springsteen is the master of that. The reason I'm in this business is probably Bruce Springsteen. I sat up at his concert in 1985 at the end of the born in the usa tour and he told this story about his dad when he came back from the draft board and it was so intimate that i got goosebumps and i was like dude i just met you like why are you telling me this you know i got that feeling like if you meet somebody at a bar and they sort of tell you something that's a little too intimate you just met them and you get uncomfortable and i got that feeling as Bruce is telling this story and then i look around and i'm like there's 75,000 people here I'm on the upper tier, a giant stadium. And this guy just made me feel real emotion and real intimacy and real commonality. And I'm like, that's magic. That's what I want to be a part of because that shows us our humanity that helps us understand each other. And that's what we need now more than ever. We need to realize we're all part of the same thing. It's the right hand fighting the left, but we're part of the same body. You know, if, if somebody who grew up like you can't go to school, Jimmy, somebody who is willing to prosper despite the hand you were dealt, 
And you didn't need, you weren't asking for a lot. You just want equal access, right? You just want to be able to get in a wheelchair and go to school and not die. You know, <laughs> yeah. right? that's not too much to ask, is it? You know, give me a chance. Yeah. And, and to say, to add on to your um, story and all about Bruce Springsteen, my dad was my Bruce Springsteen, you know, the most skilled, talented guy I know, you know, and I, I have his namesake. So to say that, you know, you learn from, your heroes and your mentors that that uh humanity i got to learn it from my dad you know and he he instilled it in me so i'm doing it because this is what my dad would want for for me and for everybody else well there you go i didn't really have that dad kind of relationship you know i was always missing a dad in my life kind of so right rock stars were my dads you know the jackson brown bruce springsteen guys i looked up to and guys that seem like they cared about making this world a better place you know, and kicking ass while they're doing it, you know, right. do it with some style. Let's have yeah. fun. It's not all, you know, it's Saturday night tonight, baby. You know what I mean? <laughs> Grab your girl, dance, forget about the week and have some fun. That's what we need to get back to as a nation. We need to have some fun. We need to come together. If you want to do that at a comedy show, you can come see me on November 18th in Norwalk, Connecticut at the wonderful Wall Street Theater. Tickets are available on my website, noelcastler.com. And you can check out the link on my Twitter. And until then, we'll see you next week. Jimmy, what do you want to say to the folks? Check out jbkonair.com for all of my stuff. Uh, and my 27th birthday is going to be on the 30th next week. So DM me. Wish me happy birthday. Uh, it's going to be a good time. Another year older, another year wiser. Things can change, folks. I was working at a gym a year ago. And now I'm on a podcast with Noel trying to yeah. build a product. You know, So if you want your life to change... It can. You just got to be willing to have an open heart. That's all. There you go. Jim had a, Jimmy had an actual job a year ago, and now he's working for free on a free podcast. So dreams do come true, folks. I'm building it, baby. Building slide, it. slide into Jimmy's DMs for his birthday. I don't know what that meant, ladies, but I'll leave that to the two of you guys to figure up, it out. That's up to them. All right. Completely Damn. up to them. Damn. <laughs> like, it's my birthday, ladies. Slide into the DMs. Hook a brother up. <laughs> Oh, mm. all right. Jimmy's blushing, guys. I don't know if you can see it. Jimmy's blushing now. You can now. Okay. <laughs> He's heading into his Saturn return, 27. That's when Cobain and all these guys, you know, Jim Morrison and stuff. 27, it hits you. It is a Saturn return because you're no longer a kid. You're starting to come into adulthood a little bit, but uh, it's a good year. You'll have a good time, Jimmy. We'll do many more episodes. But for now, this is episode 30 of the Noel Castler podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week, folks. Be safe out there and take care of each other.